I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So joining us today all the way from snowy Boston is Jesse Singal a writer, a thinker, co-host of the Blocked and Reported podcast, a contributing writer at New York Magazine, and author of a new book that has just come out called The Quick Fix, about fad psychology and how that is not going to cure our social ills. You know, I think Americans are, we love self-help. We love the idea that if we could just come up with the right mantra or mindset, we would solve complicated problems. Unfortunately, psychology, particularly social psychology, has come to reflect that in pretty unscientific ways. So we've got a lot in that little intro that we want to cover. Hi, Jesse. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. So to kind of get our audience more familiar with you and to get to know what you've been up to over the past few years, I'd like to hear a bit about what you've been through with this more recent, it's not quite a cancellation attempt, is it? Or or would you call it a cancellation attempt? An attempted cancellation. An attempted cancellation. Yeah. So it, it began when you wrote a big piece for the Atlantic magazine that touched on trans issues, and there was quite a reaction to that. What happened then? Yeah, so it was basically a um, 12 or 13,000 word cover story about youth transition, about when, um, you know, what the process should look like for younger kids, particularly, who want to go on puberty blockers or hormones. And... The piece quoted at length people who had happily transitioned and and including very young ones. But because the piece also talked about what can go wrong if kids aren't properly assessed and interviewed so-called detransitioners, there was sort of a major blow up about it that in in some quarters still echoes today. Um, Most recently, people are claiming that the article, uh, a a very left-leaning article in a center-left publication inspired right-wing legislative attempts to ban uh, youth gender transition in states like Arkansas, and there's a proposal in you know North Carolina, Texas. But so the people understand this isn't just like a few people on social media getting angry or disagreeing with what you write. It's it's become a campaign against you in for that period. Is that fair to say? 
I think it's become an attempted campaign and and um what's been frustrating is watching the sort of I could say misinformation about what's actually in the article. The text is the text, but um for a while it was just sort of random people on the internet misrepresenting what I wrote, but the campaign did grow a little bit and and you had mainstream people both um straightforwardly lying about what I wrote. There was an attempt to sort of contrive some sort of uh personal scandal involving you know the idea that I had um it's hard for me to describe because no one even put it concretely, but basically it would always circle back to the idea that I had like DM someone inappropriately, except no one could point to who I had done that to. Uh, one Twitter user said I had exploited dozens of people. Uh, it, it got, it's gotten weird. And, so the idea yeah. was that in some way you actually sort of wrote the piece or were investigating the trans issue because you had some <laughs> sort of personal sexual interest in that community and had some kind of weird agenda is that is that that was what they were trying to make out i think so it w- it was sometimes hard to to explain what the um what the charges even were because i mean if you wanted to ingratiate yourself to a community this probably wouldn't have been the piece you'd written because it obviously uh did not do that that part of it has sort of been surreal because i'm like not someone who you know, brings that much of my personal life online. I'm sort of leery about sharing it. And and just watching mainstream journalists spread those rumors was, that's a whole different level from sort of random internet weirdos spreading it. But the good news is like years later, um, it doesn't seem to have worked. Uh, people seem to understand what's going on and how this is like an outrage and attempt and a, an attempt to sort of prevent, I think, thoughtful science-based writing on this subject, but I, I do think it has a little bit of a chilling effect because after watching the response to my article, why, why would anyone want to treat this like any other controversy over youth medicine, which is what it is? I mean, we talk about culture war. Uh, that's a phrase that gets used a lot. And often it feels like that's, it's a theoretical thing or it's something that's just going on in the internet. But this is really quite a clear example, isn't it, of where you've, you've gone in, you're a left-leaning person, you're in the Atlantic, which is kind of high status, liberal publication. And yet still, it was worth concocting this whole atmosphere of distrust around you in as a way of winning the argument as a way of fighting against sort of concerns that you were raising. Yeah. And and what I find unfortunate about that is I think there are a lot of reasonable critiques one could make of the article. Like, for example, if you think I happen to not think detransition is so rare that we should treat it as um, you know, in the States, uh, right-wing evangelicals would talk about ex-gays, which supposedly proved that people weren't gay. They'd just been seduced into the lifestyle. I don't think that analogy is fair between ex-gays and detransitioners, but that's a reasonable critique. Maybe I focus too much on, on a rare outlying category. So much of the conversation about the piece has not been that. It has been that really what I want is for kids to kill themselves. Really what I want is for kids to be humiliated and harmed. And it's very hard to, to for there to be a conversation when, when it's presumed that that's what someone's motives are simply for, you know, relating what a lot of gender clinicians themselves told me, what a lot of trans people themselves told me. So, yeah, I, I'm curious what it would have been like to have written an article like this back in like, you know, 1995 when I was um, eight years old, because I know there are obviously huge controversies there, but I do think there's a way social media just hypercharges everything and, and makes it pretty... Um, deranged, frankly. So what's interesting is when you committed the that first sin or when you crossed that first tripwire, 
what some journalists do is they backtrack and you know there's an apologetic message on social media and they step away and others which seems to be what you've done it sort of triggers some defensiveness and you think well no I believe what I wrote and I'm going to stand by it has it changed your politics has it changed how you see the public square um I, I think it my co-host Katie Herzog has talked about this. The first time you endure like a really big pile on from your side after years of mostly attracting the ire of right wingers, you know, it's going to change you a little bit. I, I think it has helped me to better understand how these dynamics work and why journalists are scared of writing about some things and the weirdly potent power of social media to shape our national conversation, uh, which I think is terribly pernicious. Uh, I, I've made some errors in the past. I mean, there was one particular statistic I used in some earlier reporting that I think is probably uh, slightly off, and I've said so, and I've explained why I've changed my mind on that. With the Atlantic article, I, I stand by it completely, and, and what I tend to do if people approach me and tell me that it's a har horribly harmful piece of work is just ask them to point me to the text they disagree with or that they think warrants this response, and nine times out of ten, they can't. So I, I feel like I'm sometimes... Uh, a, I've spent way too much time defending this one article, and and it's years later. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to come on your show and do so, but uh, <laughs> it's fine. I think it's useful for people to understand um, how this works. And one of the problems is I feel like I'm fighting a ghost version of it. Like there's a version of this article in people's imaginations where I'm saying kids shouldn't transition and, and we should harm gender nonconforming kids, none of which is in the piece itself. But if if a thousand people on Twitter are convinced the article says that and they haven't read it. Um, what's the conversation going to look like? But what's happened since then and why it's significant is that you've, you're part of a growing group, I would say, of liberal journalists, commentators, thinkers who have crossed one of those tripwires and who suddenly have faced that kind of pylon. And I would say there's a sort of a group within the uh, liberals who are now really quite worried about that way of thinking. And it's interesting to think and speculate what's going to happen to that group now. Is this a new force? Is it a new kind of center in the discussion? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe it goes back to, I can't remember if, it's, if Woody Allen or Groucho Marx. I would not want to be uh, part of any club that would have me as a member. I'm skeptical of this idea of building a new group or political identity around heterodoxy for heterodoxy's sake. Uh, I think it's very important to fight for liberalism and to fight for open discourse. I've seen some people sort of go down that road where all they care about is is left-wing liberalism or overreach. Those are subjects that worry me, but I'm worried about the potential of building an identity around that and, and being blinded to everything else. I mean... Um, you know, despite all this, I, I still thought Donald Trump was a horrible threat to America's future. And I was horrified that we elected him and came sort of close to doing so again. So I, I would never want to get to the place where I lose sight of my broader politics, which are, are firmly left of center. And and part of what's pernicious about the culture wars is they really suck you in and they make you think that like nothing else matters. And, and there's a real market for them. I mean, if I wanted to maximize the amount of money I make, I would just talk about culture war stuff all the time. So there's like, there's got to be some way to find the right balance there. So why do you think is that particular issue, the trans issue, has become one of those hot topics where people are prepared to go to those kind of lengths? What is it about the ideas in that question that are kind of driving people to such extreme positions? So, 
I think there's like multiple trans debates. And and one of them is if an adult wants to transition and, and feels they would live a better, more authentic life as the other sex or as non-binary, um, we should support them. And and I think 99% of the time, left of center people have no problem with that. And if you've interviewed trans people, which I have, this isn't like they wake up one day and they're like, oh, I'm going to try being a woman. It's, it's years of a deep seated feeling that they just they can't really live as a man. They can't really live as a woman. And, and I think they should be entitled to complete dignity and health care and everything they need. There's this other version of this that I think dominates on Twitter that is maybe less about material stuff and more about sort of metaphysics it's very much about like oh no if someone says they're a woman they are literally a woman and and there's no debate allowed on that and i i i'm not convinced the average trans person spends that much time thinking about that versus things like you know making sure they have health care and housing and all that but but the sort of tumblerization of the discourse which has happened in other areas too i mean on Twitter, there's there's massive excitement about police abolition in the States. Police abolition as a policy is dead on arrival in any real world offline setting. Um, so I, I think just because the discourse online has gotten so radical and journalists spend so much time online, it, it's led to this really weird thing where a large percentage of the time we're not talking about sort of meat and potatoes issues. And then on top of that, you add the existence of kids and people are rightly worried about kids. Kids are vulnerable. You want to make sure kids get the help they need. So right-wing legislators trying to ban youth trans health care, which I think is a terrible approach. You can understand why people are worried about that. Um, so there's a lot going on. In terms of the kind of thinking, though, the atmosphere of that thinking, it's it has the feeling of extremism, doesn't it? It has the feeling of, no, any kind of moderate position along the way is not good enough. You need to say, you need to go all the way 100%. And you need to believe that you can fully remake the world through the force of ideas. So it's almost, it does have a religious sort of feel to it. Uh, do, you, do you see that? Yeah, I do. And I think it's not just this issue, but a lot of others. And it, it comes down to, I think sort of the middle is being hollowed out of liberal media in the States. And, and you see this with like who is leaving their publications or getting ousted from them to start up uh, paid newsletters on Substack or, or Patreon or whatever. Uh, it's a it's not a good situation because opinions held by maybe 85% or 90% in the con- country in some cases including that you know maybe some kids should go on hormones but there should be a serious diagnostic process there increasingly you do not find those opinions in major outlets so so where does that leave journalism if if on the most hot button issues journalism is is dedicated only to echoing the views of the sort of most radical 10 or 15% I don't want to overstate the situation. I, I The outlets that frequently drive me crazy, I also love. I also read them, and I think they have very talented journalists working for them. But I, something something weird and bad is going afoot. There is some sense of radicalization that I think um, isn't conducive to, to reasoned dialogue on, on genuinely difficult subjects. So do you think it's a mechanical thing? Do you think it's to do with chasing clicks and social media and uh, audiences and the sort of machinery of getting ahead in the media? Or do you think it's it's bigger than that and it's a sort of philosophical problem that moderation is no longer considered a virtuous position? I think it's a that's a the important question. So 
a lot of this stuff becomes clear when you realize that mainstream media is collapsing in terms of its financial model, and it's getting harder and harder to fund actual reporting. Um, there's more and more of a premium on outrage content because if you're if you're just doing everything you can to get attention, outrage is really the best way to do that to win in the attention economy. So you have that. You have the election of Donald Trump, which for understandable reasons. I think radicalize everyone. I, I viewed it as a terrible watershed moment and, and shocking. Uh, and then it just, things have gotten really weird in elite spaces that there's this sort of meltdown going on of trying to purge liberal spaces of, of wrong thinkers that um, I've become increasingly convinced is a problem. Now, as all this is going on, the U.S. Democratic candidate uh, primary, who do we pick? It's the most moderate, boring, bland white guy. It's Joe Biden, who I, I thought was too vanilla to win. I was worried about it. But uh, I don't think there's any great radicalization going on among the American public. I, I think oftentimes journalists are sort of projecting and, and their own spaces are getting radicalized, but they're increasingly not representing Americans. And, and the fact that a lot of non-white people shifted toward Donald Trump between 2016 and 2020, while white liberals shifted the other way. I, I just, something's going on here where mainstream outlets are not doing a good job speaking for the country. And that, and that worries me a great deal. Okay, so we've got a sense of your last few years and where you are philosophically then. So you're, you're a liberal who is anxious about some of the more extreme positions uh, on the liberal side. Well, and what's weird about that is I think by American standards, I'm probably a leftist. Like if I could had to pick what tax policy should be and what our healthcare system should look like, that's what's so disorienting about the present moment, that because of 5% disagreement on certain culture war issues, in some people's views, I'm being lumped in with like the right somehow. But um, yeah, but liberals fine. I'll, I'll accept that label. Okay. So you then um, have been working on this book simultaneously, which is coming out now. It's called The Quick Fix, and it's investigating fad psychology and how these kind of ideas that seem so neat might not actually do anything to help our society. Are they related in some way? Did you get to this book project in some way via the disillusionment with what you were seeing? There's some connection there. Overall, I, I, I got the book contract and wrote most of the book before I was that controversial. But it, it comes down to a lot of it to failures in media and and to sort of a belief in magical thinking and, and fairy tales. Um, the book is is really a look at how, in the States at least, TED Talk psychology has come to dominate many conversations. And every few years, a new idea from psychology rises up onto the TED Talk stage, and this becomes the way to talk about race or education or inequality. And my book argues that over and over and over, these ideas are overhyped, and they, they steal time and money and other resources away from where they belong. And... Um, you know, I think Americans are, we love self-help. We love the idea that if we could just come up with the right mantra or mindset, we would solve complicated problems. And uh, unfortunately, psychology, particularly social psychology, has come to reflect that in pretty unscientific ways. So we've, we're becoming superficial, is what you're telling us, that we're, we're not thinking deeply, we're not thinking properly, we're just grabbing at these sort of flashy ideas that sound neat, but don't actually mean anything. Yeah, and, and I don't know how much of it is we're becoming that way versus we've always. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I also think there's some across the pond differences there. Like, I, you know, uh, Europe is generally further ahead of the U.S. in terms of certain basic aspects of the welfare state. Like you guys have the, the National Health Service, which we're never going to have a National Health Service. I, I prefer one over our current system. But um, I think we try to patch up certain holes in the system with with. Uh, psychology and self-help uh, holes that might not exist, at least not as badly over there. I'm not saying the NHS is perfect, but I, I just think we have certain aspects of our welfare system are broken in a way they aren't uh, in, in your neck of the woods. And that's part of it, I think. So let's let's talk about a couple of examples um, of this. I mean, yeah. uh, you had a chapter on self-esteem and how ideas about almost commoditizing self-esteem as something that you can kind of acquire through particular patterns of thinking or reading the right thing. What is it that you saw there? Yeah, so there was a, uh, a California state legislator named John Vasconcelos and uh, via Nathaniel Brandon, who is a disciple of Ayn Rand, he became convinced that self-esteem was the root of all these social problems or, or a lack of it was. So in this view, if you, if you teach people they're special, they will commit fewer crimes, uh, they'll do better in school. And this became a nationwide craze that, that even when I was growing up uh, in elementary school in the late 80s, early 90s, I, I had a version of this. So this is an example of that very American, very self-help infused view of magical thinking of this one idea that can fix everything, taking over the country for a span. And um, Part of what's funny about this is a lot. There was a lot of talk contemporaneously about uh, an epidemic of low self-esteem in America. Americans do lack certain things. Self-esteem is not one of them. When when you survey Americans, we're all very uh, very high on ourselves. So it's just I'm fascinated by how like one idea can come to so dominate, despite there being very little evidence to suggest it's true. 
It's also that self-esteem surely in previous centuries or previous decades was something that you got maybe through a religious experience or some sort of moral validation or family or, or whatever. And now it seems like it's, it's a sort of individual commodity that you need to think your way into. Is there something there? I, th- I really think there is. I only get into this a little bit in my book, but I think the, the, especially in the States, but also in Europe, the collapse of organized religion, of civic institutions, of certain types of family ties, uh, all that's going to be replaced by something. Because as humans, we need some sort of structure. And I think that's one of the ways my own thinking has evolved since I was sort of a 20-year-old angry atheist who just thought religion was stupid and inexplicable. Like, you need, we need that stuff, something like that. And I think a lot of self-esteem is an example of that. Some of the patterns of thinking going on now, uh, they are, they're sort of replacements for religion. Um, someone smarter than me will eventually write a great book on that, but I think that's a fascinating subject. Another idea that's in your book is this idea of prime world, which is another related concept. Uh, tell us what you mean by prime world. Yeah, so so prime world is the idea that it's really easy to affect human behavior in subtle, cheap ways. Um, so uh, we have this concept of implicit bias where you can take a test. It'll reveal how implicitly biased you are, how unconsciously biased you are. And the theory goes, if we could just fix individuals' levels of implicit bias, uh, our, our race gaps would go away. And my my critique is of a lot of these prime world ideas is they... Um, obscure how deeply rooted and complicated these problems are. Like racial discrepancies in America and American racism, in some cases, trace back centuries. And these are really difficult problems to solve. So I I don't like when psychologists get up on that stage and say, well, this new thing is really going to make us a lot of progress because I... I think it's very rare that addressing individual psychologies can solve complicated social problems. I I think you need actually policy for that. Also, just to stop on that, because... The, that, those kind of tests, the implicit association test is the one you're referring to and you mentioned in the book, which I took as well. It's available, anyone can take it. It's on the Harvard website. You can just Google it. And it basically takes you through a whole load of rapid images of faces, at least the one I took, of, of black people and white people. And then there's a whole load of adjectives, good and bad adjectives. And it's designed to, it feels like it's designed to trick you into sort of being too quick on associating good adjectives with white people and negative adjectives with black people. It felt totally fraudulent to me when I did it and it came up with some results at the end. I mean, is that's the kind of thing you mean, isn't it? That that sort of test. What have you discovered about that test? Yeah, I, I actually was told that I'm mildly racist against white people, which surround, uh, surprised me a little bit. But uh, this is a test that has very little statistical power behind it. The the people who created it in 1998 long argued that this can predict how racist you're going to act in real life. That, that sitting down at a computer and taking a test over five or ten minutes can tell you something you don't know about your own behavior. Um, that was always a provocative claim and, and one that people should have required a lot of evidence to believe. Instead, they didn't. But more research came in. And in 2015, the creators of the test themselves said, this test is too noisy to use to diagnose individuals, to predict how how racist they're going to act. Um, unfortunately, like six years later, a lot of Americans haven't gotten the message. And the IAT is a mainstay of American diversity trainings, which you know, I, I call these zombie ideas. They, they sort of shamble along long after they've been uh, killed, basically, which, which isn't good. So that's that whole concept of implicit bias, checking your bias, 
somehow discovering something inside you uh, which should lead you to mistrust your own judgments. That, that to me seems like the, the heart of it. Is that how you would characterize Prime World in some way? Yeah, that, well, that's part of Prime World. I do think the, um, there's a risk of going too far in the other direction. So I think implicit bias itself is almost certainly real. And that's just like if you grow up in a white community and your only exposure to black people is TV shows where they're criminals or athletes, you know, our, our brains are not good at, at those sorts of judgments. And the, you could likely form some associations in your head that aren't healthy. The question of whether we can sort of measure implicit bias accurately or do anything about that, that's where I'm skeptical. And and prime world more generally, this idea that there's some psychological intervention to fix complicated problems like racism, I, I just think there's effectively no evidence for that. And um, uh, we've probably spent billions of dollars on that false idea. So why did we get there then? What, why is there this huge attraction to the, the quick fix, um, particularly in America? What's wrong with, with you Americans? Why are you, yeah, it's always a good question. Why, um, why are you coming up with this stuff decade after decade? I, I think we have a particularly, I mean, I'm talking to a Brit, but I think we have a particularly dysfunctional political system and people probably have developed a sense that politics can't do much for us and and justifiably so. I mean, it's been a bad few decades on that front of increased polarization, of dysfunction. We just we have a very broken system. So I think if people don't view political goals as achievable, maybe they'll look to psychology instead or or that energy will get directed elsewhere. Um that's a very hard theory to prove. It's just speculation, but but I think it's borne out by recent history. And um so yeah, I think part of part of this just speaks to a pretty a pretty broken system in a country with growing inequality and distrust of um, politic political types. Basically, is it also potentially cynical in that there's a natural industry around some of this stuff? You identify a new theory, you then can fabricate a solution for it, and then you can make money by selling people the solution. I mean, you mentioned implicit bias training that corporations are now spending millions and millions of dollars on. I mean, should we be as cynical as that just to think that it's part of the profit motive? Yeah. So uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, we should definitely be that cynical. I, I think most of the researchers themselves believe, at least at first, that they found something real and they're doing the right thing. But then imagine you're like a human resources manager at a company and, and you've been told by your bosses, we need to do something about the, um, excuse me, the diversity climate. So you're just going to like look look at the shelf and see, oh, we have uh, implicit bias training. So we can do that for $2,000, bring someone in for five hours of training, and then you check that off your box. There's a huge market for those sorts of solutions. And I think that's part of the problem. And, you know, that's not usually an evil figure cackling about trying to make money. It's like a little bit more subtle than that. But but when, when capitalism gets involved and, and there's a niche market for fighting your implicit bias or increasing your grit or any of the other ideas in my book, it, I think that is the end result. So we're getting to quite a bad situation, Jesse, because I mean, in our short conversation already, we've talked about how the absence of religion is diverting people's impulses in strange directions. We've got a broken political system that means that people are looking for quick fixes elsewhere. People aren't trained in deep thinking that might help them towards greater wisdom. And now perhaps the whole thing is exacerbated by the capitalist monster. How on earth do you start fixing this? Uh, right, exactly. My book is the quick fix. You just, uh, it'll fix everything. What's the, um, the non-quick fix? What's, what's the realistic right. fix? 
so my book talks a little bit about how how psychology itself is starting to reform itself, and and I think the next um, social psychology in particular has had a really bad twenty first century of pumping out bad ideas. I think the next twenty years are going to be better. I think there's some hope there. I also, in terms of the American political scene, I just think most people are moderate, and 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 we're media is so off the rails now, and so not in touch with like even just the average Obama and Biden voting Democrats views that that can only last so long. And we're already seeing alternative outlets pop up. We're seeing people move to Substack and Patreon and having great success. I mean, Unheard is doing well for, for many of these same reasons. So you, it's not sustain, sustainable to have a media landscape where 90% of people are sort of uh, ignored or, or condescended to. So I just think, um, uh, markets will fix some of this, frankly. I, I just, you know, I, I'd love to keep a foot in mainstream outlets. I've loved my time at New York Magazine. I want to keep writing for them. I'd love to write for The Atlantic. Some of these outlets feel not hostile, but a little bit less open to running difficult articles on difficult subjects. And I think, you know, in, in such a crowded market, you need to differentiate yourself. If And it seems like you know, uh, the usual suspects are pumping out the same material on the same subjects. And I, I already know most of these articles by heart before I read them. It's just very boring. I mean, that's kind of a, that's an answer to how we can fix the, the media or, or hope that the media might, the market might fix the media in the short or medium term. I guess I'm asking the harder question, which you may not have an answer to, but um, how do we actually fix the, the problems in society that you're talking about? I mean, it will will an improved media do that, or do we actually need po new political leadership? Is it going to come from culture? How can we start to heal this? All of these problems we've just listed out. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe this is the uh, the Marxist I would have been in another life coming out. I think in the states, a lot of problems flow from economic precarity, and and what's weird about our system is it isn't just poor people who are economically precarious. You can be comfortably upper middle class and be, you know, one injury or layoff away from financial ruin. So uh, I think there's actually a pretty big societal consensus that um, our system is not fair to people. And and uh, that would be a good thing to focus on, because I think some of the cultural weirdness stems from a sense that the system is rigged against working people, which it is. And it's, it's even rigged against wealthier people in some ways. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure that'll solve everything, but I, I think that's understanding the connection between people's material condition and and culture war stuff. I think is part of the problem. It's it's interesting because you've given us a bit of a left and a bit of a right answer in the last couple of answers. So we had the market's <laughs> going to fix it all, um, but actually, you no, know, it's the Marxist reading where it's all uh, economic. Well, power but I think that, but I think like part of the what it takes to think about this stuff intelligently is to understand that markets work in some situations. I, I trust markets to generate media that is interesting that people want to read. I don't trust markets to deliver people healthcare or education because there are sort of econ 101 reasons why we shouldn't expect market. It's not profitable to to give poor people healthcare to educate them. So there's a role, uh, there's a role for government there. So where is this going to leave you, Jesse, then? Uh, we, we've talked about your political journey. What's the next staging post in it? Do you think uh, are you going to head in a in a libertarian direction now? Uh, are, 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 are you going to be the new Glenn Greenwald from uh, Substack? 
I like drinking with libertarians. They're very fun. Um, I like I like them on drug policy. Economic wise, I, I still really am a lefty. I don't know. I mean, I love hosting my podcast. We've gotten a big response to it. I love writing my newsletter. Uh, I'd, I'd love to find another interesting thing to write a book about, hopefully not culture war related. And, and I'd love to just be seen as someone who can um, who's an honest broker and who can attempt to make some sense of the world. I, I don't think I have much of a political agenda beyond that because some of the culture war stuff does get get pretty exhausting after a while. Okay, I'm going to leave you with the hard politics question now, um, Jesse. What do you think of the new president? Is this working? Given everything you've said, is he a, is he a healing presence? Is he going to hinder it? Is, where do you stand on the new president? So, I mean, the public opinion polling suggests so far he's very popular and he's a healing is a healing presence. Of course, some people are saying that he's people who are, in my view, a little bit too fixated on the wokeness wars think that he's giving too much power to to woke types. But but the Democratic coalition in the states now is very complicated. It needs to bring together sort of, you know, somewhat socially conservative minority voters who, who aren't white with woke white liberals. And it's hard to keep that big, messy coalition together. And the Republican Party doesn't have the same problem because I think it is much whiter and more politically homogenous. So I think he's doing OK so far. He he passed a big um, the, the sort of coronavirus stimulus bill is paired with a, a child credit that puts a lot more money in Americans' pockets. And I think that's the kind of thing I love that could make a big difference if they can make it permanent. So my sense is so far he's doing pretty well. But that same bill, wasn't it criticized for prioritizing certain ethnic groups in a way that didn't seem particularly uh, economically just necessarily? Um, we've had other aspects like that, where some of these woke ideas have actually led to hard dollars being dispersed differently. Yeah. So there's some of that. America also has pretty strong constitutional protections against like genuine race-based stuff. I mean, it gets complicated. You get into legal fights, but but the signature, his signature policy victory so far was just a straight up, uh, if your income is below this amount, you get $300 per kid per month, which is to my mind, sort of a uh, German or Scandinavian, and that's the direction I want us to come in. And it has nothing to do with race; it has to do with class. And the, what I wish my some of my compatriots uh, on the left of center would realize is it doesn't all need to be race based because there are such big class disparities. Because the bottom is disproportionately non-white, anything that is directed at poor people will help white poor people, which is good, but will also disproportionately help non-white people. So. I do worry about, especially with like the coronavirus vaccine rollout, like uh, Vermont had a crazy, you know, it's like uh, it was only at 55 and up unless you identify as a person of color, which is just not smart public health policy. That said, there are only five non-white people in Vermont, so it probably doesn't make a big difference. But I'd be lying if I said that stuff doesn't Quite work, a principle, I, though, wasn't it? It was quite a... It, I felt like a Rubicon yeah. was crossed with that Vermont decision. It, it was not great. But um, mm. I, I have some hope overall. I haven't given up yet. Wonderful. Jesse Singal, I, I, I got a, a sense there of some very serious problems that you've been experiencing and writing about and yet quite a sunny disposition and quite an optimistic view of our ability to solve them. So that's what I got from that. I mean, I, I get to make a living writing and talking, so I'm incredibly lucky. There's been some uh, Twitter nonsense along the way that's frustrated me, but I, I'd, I'd have to be a jerk to complain about my overall situation. So uh, I appreciate it. Jesse, thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. 
That was Jesse Singal, writer and author, someone who has been intimately caught up in the culture wars in the past few years, who's just written a book about fad psychology and our woeful addiction to superficial answers to serious problems, and yet someone who seems pretty optimistic about our ability to solve them. So thanks to him and thanks to you for joining. This was Lockdown TV. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.